All right, show of hands, any HGTV fans in the room? Any HGTV fans in the room? Wow, I'm seeing like two or three. I thought there would be way more. In the month of January, I was really excited about the NFL playoffs, and I thought today would be a good time to show my softer side a little bit. I like to watch HGTV. And you might think, oh, Dave, that's great. You're a pretty handy guy, and you're learning some tips and tricks along the trade. Not at all. I am well below average. If you remember Red Green when he said something like, if your wife doesn't find you handsome, at least she can find you handy. I'm the opposite. My wife doesn't find me handy at all, so hopefully she finds me a little bit handsome. But I'm amazed at what these people can do. They can take this little dysfunctional kitchen and they'll blow out a wall and they'll reimagine what the, uh, the cabinets look like and they'll have a, put in a big picture window. And what they do in an hour would probably take me a week. And I sit back and I go, that's amazing work that they've done. Now, I don't necessarily go hunting for HGTV shows like I would turn to TSN and watch the Oilers game or a highlight package or something like that. But on Saturday afternoons, I'll kind of flip around and my wife and I will end up there and we watch a show called House Hunters and we debate, oh, would you buy that house on the lake or something a little bit smaller but, um, but has more amenities nearby. And we have these conversations. But one of my favorite things is that when you get these couples together and they actually start fighting as to how they should renovate this house. And so the wife comes on and she kind of makes fun of her husband and she says, oh, 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 I need to move this wall and be a big ogre. And then the husband comes on and goes, oh, can we have some more throw pillows? You got to get some there and some there. And they interact together in this beautiful way. Tomorrow night is a show that I'm really interested in. It's called Rock the Block. And so they have, I think, four or six different couples, and they're given very similar homes, identical budgets, and they have to transform what that house is going to look like. Keep that in mind for the end of the sermon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our church family. Thank you for the joy it is to come together, to sing together, to take communion together, to hear the scriptures together. God, we pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that my words would fall down and that your words would be lifted up. God, in front of friends and family, I pray that my voice would be able to uh, stay working for the next two services. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Luke 11, verse 37. Luke 11, verse 37. If you're brand new to church, welcome. We're so glad you're here, whether you're watching online or in the room with us. Uh, the Bible can be a little bit confusing, but thankfully there's a table of contents. Luke is in the New Testament, which means it happens after the birth of Jesus. Big numbers of the chapter numbers, small numbers of the verse numbers. So here's what's happening so far. Jesus has chosen 12 disciples. You can think apprentices. These are people who follow him, who watch him, who engage with what he's doing because they know eventually they're going to be sent out to do ministry as well. And over the last couple of chapters, there's been a little bit of conflict that's taken place. It's pretty normal for a rabbi, for a teacher, for a spiritual leader to have a group of disciples who follow him along and to watch what he does. But what's different about Jesus is he teaches radically different than the other rabbis. And we're starting to see this conflict take place. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the Good Samaritan. And the religious leaders think that you're kind to people who look like us, who talk like us, who act like us. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 we love everybody. Last week, Pastor Joel was talking about this conflict that was taking place between Jesus and Satan and the casting out of demons. The Pharisees were saying, Jesus, you must be related to Satan in some way. And Jesus says, that's not the case at all. Today, the conflict is going to explode. 
verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 37 to 41. If you enjoy following along word for word, I always preach from the ESV. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within. Behold, everything is clean for you. For the note takers in the room, we start with this. Lipstick on a pig. Now this isn't necessarily a point. I'm not gonna invite my cousin Craig, who's a pig farmer out by Tofield, to come in and tell you how to put lipstick on a pig, but it would be quite a fascinating message. He'd probably say something like, well, we can wrestle the pig first, or we can hog tie it, or we can tranquilize it. We should bring up Pastor Joel and see how quick that trank dart works. That would be really something special. But what is really going on is Jesus is terribly disappointed with how the Pharisees are acting. If you were an average Jew listening to what's taking place between Jesus and the Pharisees, you wouldn't even blink an eye that one of the Pharisees invites Jesus for dinner. You think, oh, here's a religious leader. Here's Jesus, this great teacher. Of course, they're gonna get together and talk about God. So as the Pharisee invites Jesus over, the crowd starts to disperse, and then they start having this meal together. The problem begins when they sit down, and many different translations all um, use different words, but has the same kind of big idea as to how this Pharisee responds to Jesus. We see that, the, uh, that he's astonished, that he's surprised, that he's marveled, or that he wondered, how could Jesus not have washed? Makes me think of this uh, Larson cartoon. I'm not sure if you ever follow Far Side, but there's this great picture of this man who walks out of the bathroom and the alarm's ringing because he hasn't washed his hands and the people look at him in absolute disgust. Now, there might be some historical context that would be helpful. A majority of us in this room are probably looking at the English Standard Version or the New International Version. And when you look at verse 38, you see he did not wash before dinner. And if you're like me, you think to yourself, well, what's the big deal? But look at how a different translation does this. The NASB says, when the Pharisees saw this, he was surprised that Jesus had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. The word here in the original Greek is baptizo. It's where we get the word baptism, and it adds a whole other layer to what's taking place. In other words, the Pharisee isn't concerned about Jesus' hygiene before the meal. The Pharisee is deeply concerned about Jesus' ceremonial cleanliness before the meal. Now, still, you might look at this and go, well, still, Dave, why didn't Jesus ceremonially wash his hands? Why would he not have done that? But there's a couple things that are taking place here. In the Old Testament, in the book, in the Torah, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Moses gives the Jews 613 laws to follow. What happens is these uh, lawyers, these religious scholars, take those 613 laws and they expand on them, creating human tradition. And part of this ceremonially washing your hands is not part of the Mosaic law. It's part of this human tradition that's developed. Now, human tradition isn't bad. Here in Canada, when uh, we invite people over to our home, we expect that then when they walk in the door, that they'll take off their shoes. In the United States, when we go into somebody's home, we keep on our shoes. In other parts of the world, you take your shoes off and your socks off. So human tradition isn't necessarily bad. But there's also some cultural expectation that takes place. If I come to your house, I would expect that you'll take my jacket and that you'll offer me something to drink. But as I come to your house, I'm also going to say to you, hey, is there anything that I can bring? And I'm going to show up on time to show that I'm respecting you in return. And the Pharisee is looking at Jesus and he is appalled. How can this religious teacher 
walk into my house and not wash his hands? Who does he think he is? And Jesus gets angry. And Jesus' anger revolves around this word, baptizo. If you've been around the church for a little while, hopefully you've been able to see a baptism take place. And different pastors are gonna introduce baptism different than others, and that's totally normal. But one of the phrases that you probably hear from time to time is that baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. So you have this baptismal candidate, and she loves Jesus, and she is so grateful for the life transformation that Jesus has done in her heart. And so we get to watch her testimony on the big screen, and then somebody baptizes her, and this baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality of how God is changing her. And this is what makes Jesus so mad. The Pharisees are great at outward expression, They're great at ceremony, but the inside doesn't match. Jesus is looking at him and thinks, you are an evil, wicked person doing something to cleanse yourself on the outside. It's like putting lipstick on a pig, and it doesn't work. The analogy Jesus gives is actually one that many of us can relate to. How often have you finished supper, and maybe it's a bowl of spaghetti, and you look down at that bowl, and even though you've eaten it and you've enjoyed it, that bowl is disgusting. There's a couple straggling pieces of spaghetti. There's meat sauce caked onto the inside of the bowl. There's no way you're taking cereal and pouring that in that bowl without cleansing it first. And Jesus is saying, you are just like that inner bowl and your insides are wicked. You have this moral depravity about you. And understand, this is a stinging blow. For the Pharisees, they think to themselves, we are the moral standard. We are the ones who follow this law perfectly. Not only do we follow the law, we follow what the religious leaders add to the law. We are the embodiment of moral purity. And Jesus saying, no, you're not. You are wicked and you are evil. And the Pharisees see themselves going through this idea of ritual purity. And Jesus is saying, I want to see your heart changed. Pharisees, if you want to wash your hands, go right ahead. But don't do it before your heart has been transformed. Make sure your heart is in the right place. Give to the needy. Give to the poor. Help those who are hurting. Listen to those who don't know how to fulfill these obligations. Give your heart to God and love those around you. If you don't, that ceremonial washing is just lipstick on the pig. And then Jesus says, this is what I want from you. I want a complete and total renovation of the heart. This is verses 42 to 44. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like the unmarked graves and people walk over them without even knowing it. We hear these words towards the Pharisees in the following few verses. We'll have three word, uh, woes towards the lawyers. And the significance cannot be overstated. This idea of woe means divine judgment. And this threefold repetition me- means that there is a divine action taking place. Woe is divine judgment. Threefold repetition, divine action. We've seen this before. Um, uh, I forget if it was Colton or Joel just mentioned back into what was taking place in the fall. And uh, Pastor David walked us through the nine plagues that are taking place in Egypt. And if you're thinking to yourself, aren't there 10? Yes, but we started with just nine. And they're found in groups of three. Divine action, divine action, 
divine action, and then total judgment with that tenth and final plague. When Jesus comes to the Pharisees, he is giving them a divine judgment and saying, this action is going to take place. Woe to you. Change your heart. Transform your heart. This is the warning. Listen to me because I care about your heart. Now, it's nice when we have a friend with us who's smarter than us and sticks up for us and is able to verbally overcome those who are surrounding them. But before we get too excited in these six woes, I want you to look at them and to think, which of these affect my heart? Which of these is like looking in the mirror myself? Woe one, tithing without heart. This is really an absurd picture. These Pharisees are so committed to tithing that they take their mint leaves and weigh them and give one-tenth back to the priests. Can you imagine taking 40 mint leaves and it barely even weighs an ounce and you think, well, I'm gonna give these four mint leaves back to the priests so that they can use it to enjoy nicer water or something of that sort. Now, if you're brand new to church, you might be thinking, what is this whole tithe? Um, You've probably heard in our announcements, uh, David says it nearly every announcement time, everything we have comes from God. And it's been church tradition literally for thousands of years that we would give 10% of of what we have earned back to God. Now, some of you hear that and you've been Christians for a long time and you think, yeah, that makes sense. Some of you hear that and you go, 10%? Have you seen inflation? How could I afford that? If I made $5,000 a month, that would be $500 that you would be asking me to give each month. But if you're brand new to church or maybe you've been here for a little while and you're thinking, man, I don't know about this giving thing. Don't worry about 10%. Where can you start? Maybe you give 1% or 2%. Maybe you say, you know what, God, every time I come to church, I'm gonna give $20. That's awesome. It's a place where you can start and, and build on. So Jesus is looking at these Pharisees and he says, good for you, you're giving your 10%, that's wonderful. But on the way to synagogue, you walked right by a single mom asking for food and you didn't even give her a second glance. Are we tithing without heart? Do we just give without even thinking about it? Or do we think about the people who are around us? Do we have eyes to see those who are hurting? Opportunities to give to those who need it most. The second thing, is seeking reputation. The Pharisees enjoyed being uh, invited to parties and receiving seats as honored guests. When you meet them in a marketplace, you were actually expected to bow to them and give this elaborate greeting, and they would kind of boast in this sunshine of, wow, look at how important I am. And it makes you think, man, how often do we do that ourselves? How often do we seek to be more reputable in our own fields or at church? And we show up every Sunday. How much did you give to that last giving project? This is how much I gave. And we wear our best clothes, not because we want to give God our best, but because we're hoping that somebody will look at us. And we invite somebody over of importance to our home, and they say yes, and then we tell everybody that we had somebody important into our home. How often do we seek reputation? I think it was Charles Spurgeon who gave this wonderful illustration of a man working in a king's court. He was working in a king's court. This farmer showed up, and this farmer wasn't much to look at. But the king welcomed him anyways, and the farmer said, Oh, great and um, uh, kind and gracious king, I give to you the best of my garden, the best my produce has to offer. And the king, so moved by this farmer, says, Thank you for your generosity. I want you to oversee all of the king's gardens. This man working in the king's court thought to himself, That's fascinating. If this farmer did that, what would happen if I give him a horse? 
And so the very next day, this man who works in the king's court brought to him a horse and says the exact same words, great and glorious and gracious king, here is a horse that I have for your stables because of your kindness. And the king says, thank you. And the man, a little bit perturbed, looks at the king and he says, I don't get it. Yesterday a farmer came and all he gave you was some lowly produce and you gave him the king's gardens. I'm giving you the horse and all you do is say thank you. And the king replies, that man gave me the vegetables. You're giving yourself the horse. How often do we seek after our own reputation? The third woe to the Pharisees is false living. The Pharisees think they are leading their followers into life, but the opposite is true. They are leading their followers into death. And this is a damning statement. And Jesus is looking at them and says, yep, you tithe. Yes, you have the Torah memorized. Yes, you have prestigious seats, but your heart is so corrupt that you are defiling everybody who follows you. How often do we show up to church and we think, oh, we're just putting on a good show? I can show up for an hour and I can smile and I can shake some hands and I can sing some songs and I can take uh, communion and I've got my phone out in front of me and I'm following along in the Bible for a little while until Dave gets boring, then I'll check Facebook or what's happening with my fantasy hockey team. What does the world see? What does your family see? Your coworkers, your classmates? Do they look at you and say, that is a man, that is a woman who is different and stands out in the most positive way? Or not so much? Suddenly this new face enters the scene. We see it in verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. A lawyer is a religious scholar. The lawyers are writing all these laws that the Pharisees are enforcing, and it's just piling up on those who are trying to be good followers of of the Torah. This is what we read in verses 45 and following. And Jesus said to them, woe to you lawyers also. You load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. It's about heavy burdens. And here's the worst part. These lawyers aren't even following the own laws that they're creating. These lawyers are saying, if this is what it means to be to honor the Sabbath, here are the 39 rules surrounding the Sabbath that you need to do. To put that into perspective, think about these Lent practices that we've been doing over the last little while. And rather than just saying, hey, last week was no background noise, no listening to the radio, no listening to the podcast, no having a TV in the background while we eat just for background noise. But rather than just offering it as a practice, an opportunity to draw closer to God, which I thought David did a really good job of in his announcements, that we say, if you don't do this, you are not welcome back to synagogue. And by the way, we're the only synagogue in town, so it'll be quite the punishment that you cannot come together with your group of fellow Jews, your group of fellow Christians. Oh, and you know, Jesus, he's actually going to be suffering quite a lot more than just having no background noise. So as we go through these Lenten practices over the next six weeks, it's going to add on top of each other. No background noise. No social media. Next week is no junk food. The week after that, I believe, is no TV. 
and you hear this and you think, oh my goodness, this is really, really hard. Meanwhile, I invite all the staff to my house and we have a dance party and we're having junk food and taking pictures and we're putting them up on Instagram and people are getting upset. And Jesus is saying that is no way to treat those who are attending the church. Then he gets really particular. Um, I'm sorry, I think I'm a little bit off. My apologies. He looks to the blood of the prophets. The gloves are off and he's about to let Jesus, uh, he's about to let to have the Pharisees just have it. And he looks at them and he says, you quote these great prophets, you quote Elijah and Daniel and Isaiah and all the rest, but you are no better than your forefathers who killed them and put them in the ground. Who brought Jesus to be killed before Pilate? The religious leaders. After Jesus ascended to heaven, who took the apostles and the other leaders and persecuted them and imprisoned them? The religious leaders. Who persecuted all of the followers of Jesus in those early years after Jesus rose from the grave? The religious leaders. One other comment, and it's small, but it's one of those things that I think reveals this divine author. If you look really closely at verse 51, it says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. I think this actually reveals a divine author. From A to Z. Now you might look at that and go, Dave, I don't know if it reveals a divine author. It's clever writing. But think about this. The death of Abel, the first death we read about in all of scripture is in Genesis chapter 4. The death of the prophet Zechariah is found in 2 Chronicles 24. And you might think, well, Dave, Chronicles, yeah, that's later on, but it's still only about halfway through the Old Testament. In our Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, it's called the Tanakh, has Genesis at the beginning and 2 Chronicles at the very end. From Abel to Zechariah, from first to last, from beginning to end, you have killed all the prophets. Now you might look at this and think, what does that have to do with me? I haven't killed anybody. But how often do we practice character assassination? How often do we talk about what other churches are doing and go, oh, I wouldn't do that? How often do you have roast preacher for lunch? How often do you have these conversations in your home or with others about somebody else at church who isn't doing the same thing we should do? How are you doing with the blood of the prophets? The sixth and final woe. You have lost the key of knowledge. This is the knockout blow. Verse 52, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. Jesus is staring at the religious leaders and you can imagine how angry he must be. You know the truth. I was just talking to one of your religious leaders. Love God, love people. And you locked that up and you threw it away. Now you don't know the truth and the people who are following you don't know the truth. What are you doing? You've lost that key of knowledge. True story. When I was serving in Alberta Beach, I performed a funeral of a man who on his way home on a cold winter night lost his key and literally died outside of his door, frozen to death. This vivid picture, you have the key of knowledge and you are not letting anybody in. How are you doing? Over the last six months or so, we have talked a lot about one of our values as a church and inescapable mission. In all of September, we were going through what it means to have this art of hospitality, the art of neighboring, the art of conversation, the art of invitation. 
The book of Exodus is this beautiful story of redemption and God using humans like us to bring people to understand who he is. In January, hard questions, equipping you to answer the difficult questions that people are having this very moment. And so when the apostle Peter writes, at all times, do you have an answer for those that you, uh, for the hope that you have? Do you know how to point people to Jesus? Do you know how to tell people that this is the great and glorious king and he is the hope for the reason that we have? Beautiful passage from Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, says Jesus, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is so upset with these religious leaders because he wants to see an interior renovation. He wants to see a transformation of their hearts. He wants to see a transformation of their minds. So how do we get there? The passage doesn't tell us, so allow me to give three ideas that hopefully hit the different personalities in the room. The first is this, spiritual practices. The best way to draw close to God is through Bible reading and through prayer. But let's talk about these Lenten practices for just a moment. Last week, David gave the announcements and he says, our first week of Lenten practice is no background noise. And I sat there and I was taking notes. And I was listening to Pastor Joel and I hopped in my car, turned on a sports podcast and drove home without a care in the world. And then on Tuesday, I re, uh, pardon me, later that afternoon, I remembered, oh shoot, no background noise. And I kind of laughed with my wife and went on with my day. On Tuesday, I had to referee soccer. And I was, it's about a half hour drive to soccer. It's, I ended a li little bit after 10 o'clock and I am exhausted. If you remember Tuesday night, it wasn't a snowstorm, but it was snowing pretty heavy and I'm driving back home on Henday, 30 minutes with no background noise. And so I just started praying. And that time with God was sweet and beautiful and a time that I normally wouldn't spend with him. I had a heavy week, and I believe that that time really set me up for the rest of the week. When we think of these Lenten practices, social media, junk food, no TV, one of the weeks is whatever your vice is, give that up for a week. Will you take that time, not because you have to, but because you want to and draw closer to God? Second thing, do you have courageous community here at the church? Do you have somebody, a good friend, same sex as you, who you can talk to about what is challenging you in life? Do you have a spouse who can say to you, this is an area in your life that I really would like to see you grow in? Do you have a good friend in your life who would say, this is an area where I really think you need to grow? Do you have a friend who loves you enough to speak truth into your life and say, this is where I see your heart could really grow in this area? to have courageous community, men and women speaking into our lives so that we become more like Jesus. For the readers in the room, there's a beautiful book called Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard has gone on to be with Jesus, um, brilliant man. He was a philosophy professor at USC and has written some incredible books. For those of you who um, might be interested and want to grab it, I have one copy in my office, so whoever meets me first can borrow it for a length of time. Do you want to see God transform your heart? There's this beautiful passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now the Lord is the spirit. 
and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now we who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. I want to invite the worship team to come and join me up on the platform. At the beginning of the service, I talked about HGTV. And I talked about a TV show tomorrow that's called Rock the Block where these four or six couples, I can't remember how many, are given similar homes, identical budgets, and are asked to make a renovation. I think this is a beautiful picture of the opportunity that we have in Jesus. All of us have similar hearts. All of us have hearts that when we are born are are not following Jesus immediately. But we've come here today knowing that we want to follow him. We might have different personalities, we might have different experiences, we might have different spiritual gifts, but all of us have a heart and all of us have access to the identical person of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, I want to come into your life. I want to transform your heart. I want you to look so much like me that the world around you would see you and say, what is different about you? Tell me the hope for the reason that you have and do it joyfully. And all of us are going to look different in the end. Some of us are going to be amazing at having coffee. Some of us are going to be amazing at serving behind the scenes. Some of us are going to be in different workplaces, community leagues, homes, and schools. But all of us have the opportunity to share with others, this is what a renovated heart looks like. And that's what Jesus is calling for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel of Luke. Thank you for Luke chapter 11 and this calling to, uh, to the Pharisees and the lawyers to renovate their hearts. May we be people who want to renovate our hearts to be more like you, to be changed, to be transformed, to have this interior renovation take place. And that we would be a church that loves so deeply that we would invite people to understand who Jesus is, that we would include people who walk into our buildings and our homes, that we would invest in seeing the next generation learn about Jesus. We pray this in your holy name, amen.